This podcast is brain powered by the University of Sydney. We are controlling transmission. Dr. Carl and Adam Hey, thank you so much for joining myself, Adam Spencer, and Dr. Carl Kruzelnitsky for this week's Sleek Geek podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Sleek Geeks. The show is always brought by a particular number. This mm-hmm. week, Carl, this week's Sleek Geeks podcast is brought to you by the number 19. Hey, on 19 is Prime. What else? Give me something else. Give, uh, me, give me a bone, man. Give me a freaking bone. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Dude, I'm not going to tell you why the number Ooh. 19 yet, but I've seen ahead. I've looked ahead to the question I'm going to ask you from Twitter this week, wow. and I think I'll be able to parlay that into something to do with the number 19. Oh, the cosmic segue spelled not S-E-G-W-A-Y, but S-E-G-U-E. Exactly. It's a sleeper this week. The number 19 is a bit of a sleeper. But before we get there, a lot of people listening to us um, on their computers at home, maybe on their MP3 devices... As a cyclist, uh, the bane of the, the modern-day cyclist's life, when you're cycling along a shared path, uh, is the person you can see a couple of hundred metres in front of you with the headphones on and you're dinging away on your bell and dinging away on your bell and dinging away on your bell and you know they just can't hear you, either because they're listening to really loud bell music and it just all blends in, ding, 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 or they're, just, they're listening <laughs> to stuff so loud yeah. they just can't hear what's going by. Why Why do we like listening to music so loud? Uh, it's called the Fletcher-Munson curve. So uh-huh. this is Fletcher and Munson back in 1933, and this was back in the days when telephone companies did Nobel Prize winning research mm-hmm. as opposed to... They don't. And they worked out um, that... No offence to the good people at Telstra and Optus who work very hard. But they don't do... They don't fund Nobel Prize winning research. Not picking up that many Nobel Prizes these days. And they worked out that if you're listening to... No offence to Crazy John. As well. Yet yet to pick up the Nobel Prize for medicine. So if you're listening to very quiet music, Mm -hmm. you're sort of hearing it, but you're thinking it's a bit thin and you're missing out the bass and the treble. Okay. And then as you crank it up louder and louder, your ears perceive more bass and treble. There's the same proportionate amount of bass and treble. It's dead flat all the way from low frequency to middle to high. Oh. But your ears are tuned when you're listening to quiet stuff to pick up another human voice. So if you're saying, look out, Carl, kill a kangaroo over there, I can hear that. And there's no bass and treble, just a minimum amount of energy. And then as the sound gets louder and louder, gradually you equalise up your bass and treble. So when you're listening to music really loudly, you're hearing all the whole thing. You're hearing the middle and the bass and the treble, and that's why you want to hear loud music, because you're hearing the whole output that they're outputting. So it sounds more satisfactory to me at that volume because I'm hearing all the components of the music more effectively. That's right. So you crank it up a little bit, you hear more bass and treble. You think, that was good. Therefore, if a little is good, more is better. So you just keep on cranking it out until you get into ear bleed territory. Two quick things on loud Mm-hmm. Uh, um, um, noises. First of all, with loud music, it, it, it is we are at risk. They say, don't they? Audiologists of a generation of young people doing themselves long-term chronic hearing damage with the, the headphones in, cranked up to eleven for an hour each morning and night. There are a lot of people listening to music just too loud at the moment, aren't there? Yes, and we're already beginning to see them coming through in their middle twenties with measurable hearing loss coming through to the audiologist who can no longer tell the difference between fox and socks. 
Uh, was that F with a foxtrot or S with Sierra? Wow. So they're beginning to lose their consonants even in their early, middle 20s. Something that I presume they should not display until much Later older on. in their life. 50s and 60s. In my case, I damaged my hearing by being a roadie for rock and roll bands. Mm. So early on, I realised that I had, and I went and got measured, uh, an 8 dB hearing loss in the mid-range. And so I started wearing headphones and earplugs. I couldn't reverse the damage, but at least I wouldn't get any more. And for people who might not know this, you, you were a roadie for, amongst others, Bo Diddley. Bo Diddley, the man. He would have rocked. He was great. He was a wonderful, kind man. You told me a wonderful story once about Bo Diddley. Didn't you, you, you were part of uh, Bo Diddley's support staff? I was a roadie, yep. At, at, a, at an event where there wasn't a particularly large crowd. It hadn't been well advertised. And Bo Diddley said before the show to everyone, there's not that many people out there. We're going to go and show them how good a show Bo Diddley could do and was still completely professional, even though it was a comparatively small crowd and someone of his status could have gone, oh, this is just a waste of my time. Yeah. I, I was really impressed by, firstly, with the guys that he was with, the Waste of Days band. He was saying, now, guys, you're playing good music, but you've got to have some stage moves. So he went out of his way to teach some stage moves. And then he did that thing on the night with a very small audience. And I said, well, how are you going to go? He says... For me, I've played this song 2,000 times. For them, it's their first time. I'm going to give them a full show. I'm going to go out there and rock with everything I've got. Good on him. And the other guys were saying, yeah, well, that's nice. It's sort of like a professional work ethic. Yeah. Like it's not show It's show business. It's not show entertainment or show lazy lie down and have a bludge if yeah. there's not enough audience. So good on you, Bo. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Second very quick question on on, on volume because I want to get to our little, uh, our little Twitter question. No, it's an absolute doozy. Uh why do people speak more loudly when they've had a couple of drinks? Ah, what happens is that you need a feedback circuit and by having alcohol, which, by the way, is a wonderful chemical, it'll strip the oil off your garage floor, it will preserve body parts for centuries, mm. and in moderate doses, it helps society roll along and it's probably not too bad for you. Big doses is bad. It also anaesthetizes the acoustic nerve, which carries the sound information to the brain, you're not getting the feedback, and so you can tell when the alcohol consumption has reached a certain level. Well, people start talking more loudly because you hear you, them over the fence. You want to hear in your ear the same level of volume that you hear when you're talking sober, but because things are damped in there, you have to shout louder for the same effective volume to get through. Exactly perfect. Great stuff. So just let me ask you for a second there, Carl. I got distracted with the Bo Diddley talk. You said that during your time as a roadie, you'd damaged your hearing. You'd taken a few mm. decibels off the middle range. What, what, what have you physically done to your body if you've damaged your hearing and you say in a way that can't be repaired? At the moment, with current technology. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping it will be repairable with future work. Uh, I have ripped off, at base level, the hair cells inside my cochlea. They no longer exist. So somebody has gone along with a lawnmower and gone, and instead of a nice furry growth of hair cells in certain areas corresponding to the mid-frequencies, I got nothing. Okay, so explain to us quickly, how does the ear work and what, what, what role does hair inside your head play in you hearing? If a sound comes in, hits the outside of my ear, what happens from there for it, me to registering sound? It then goes down the slightly narrowing ear canal until it hits the um, eardrum, and the narrowing of the ear canal does what the engineers call a phase transfer and a, a transition. So it trans helps transfer the energy from auditory into m better coupled to move the eardrum. When the eardrum then goes backwards and forwards, when you're listening to the quietest noise you can possibly hear, it's moving back and forth a distance equal to 
a hydrogen atom. I love that. Let's just pause for a second yeah. and go through that again. So your eardrum, as sound is being produced, is vibrating backwards and forwards. The quietest sounds... That undamaged he- hear- that, ears can hear. That a that are, that are well-functioning human hear- ear, the quietest sound you can perceive makes your eardrum vibrate backwards and forwards only the distance of a hydrogen atom. And, atom. And, and, and there are quantum effects involved with hearing as there are with vision, oh. and if you didn't have them, your vision would be only half as good. So the eardrum is moving this microscopic distance backwards and forwards. So as the eardrum moves, what's happening further inside uh, my head to the eardrum? Three bones with the names of hammer, anvil and stirrup because mm-hmm. of their shapes, and they have the smallest synovial joints. They're the full lubricated joint with synovial fluid in the whole body. And they're also attached to muscles so that if there's a sudden natural sound like a lightning bolt, the muscles will pull on them to dampen the Mm. movement of those bones. And then the bones press on a window, which is flexible. And on the other side of the window is a liquid and pressure waves go into that liquid. And then they're going into a chamber that's shaped like a cone. And so different uh, frequencies work at different parts of the cone. And in the mid-ranges where I am, where they're supposed to um, be able to make the hair cells, so there's little hair cells, and the hair cells are sticking up in the liquid, and when the pressure wave comes through, they should bend over. And in the act of bending, they give off electricity, and this then goes into your um, auditory nerve and into your brain to be turned into sound. So it's it's the liquid stimulating the hairs mm. creates the electrical response mm. that channels the sound. And I have sheared off those hairs, so, certainly. I've so, seen photos of other people. So those hairs are part of your body that don't grow back, so that's why at the moment damage to your hearing is permanent. That's right. Stem cell technology further down the line, who knows? At the moment, we got nothing. What's up? Twitter time. Yeah! Come on! Twitter! Now, someone has sent us a Twitter Question at Sleek Geeks. Tweet us anytime, and we'll get to your questions during one of the podcasts. And it says, It's from Nick Gross. Good on you, Nick. Dr. Carl, has there been any recent insight into Olbers paradox? O L B E R S, Olbers paradox. Is that the one about why is the sky dark when there's meant to be an infinite number of stars out there? Yeah. Is that vaguely Olbers paradox? Yeah, now look. By the way, you should have read my 30-second book, Fifty Shades of Grey Matter, where the Mm. answer is. And just think, as an example, imagine that you're being helicoptered into a clearing in the forest. Okay. And so we're talking two dimensions here, and you go in this clearing, and everywhere you look, man, you see a tree trunk. You don't see naked sky unless you look straight up. But if you're looking, you know, left and right, backwards and forwards, mm-hmm. everywhere you look, there's a t- tree trunk in your field of view. In the same way, mm-hmm. at night, in three dimensions, why isn't there a star wherever you look? Okay, so no matter if, you, if you're looking straight out there at what looks like a little bit black spotted space, if we go far enough, if a spaceship went far enough along that line, it should eventually hit a, it star. Hit a star. Why aren't you seeing? So That's why right. isn't the sky just a blanket of white light? Ah. Yeah, well, Olba was one of the guys who worked out. It was actually worked out before him by some British guys. But Olga, Olba, O-L-B-R, Heinrich Olba, he was the uh, guy who worked out a new way to calculate the orbit of a comet. Mm-hmm. And he also realised why the tail of a comet always points away from the sun. And his explanation was, well, there's dust in between. And, you know, it's like in a forest, the dust would obscure the more distant trees. So all you see are the closest ones. That's wrong because if there was dust, 
it would heat up um, by the light energy it was absorbing to be as bright as the stars. Okay. So the answer is a five-part answer. By the way, if you want to know the 15-part answer, <laughs> read the book by Edward Harrison in his book called Cosmology, the Science of the Universe. But the Just give, th- give me the five-part five, answer, Carl. Five-part. Number one, the universe is not infinitely old. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's only about 13 point something billion years old, so the stars have been shining only for a relatively short time. Mm-hmm. Secondly, it's not infinitely large. The observable universe reaches out only some 46 billion light years. Mm-hmm. Three... Light takes time to get to us, you know, from the sun, eight minutes, from Andromeda, two million years ago, which means there's some stars out there, their light hasn't reached us yet. Uh Number four, stars don't shine forever. They have a life. And so some of the the stars have switched off and died. And Mm -hmm. number five, there's not enough stars in our universe. If there were... 10 billion, that's 10 to the 10th more stars, that would override reasons one to four enough. But with our pathetic one-tenth of a billionth of a, you know, it's two factor, it's too small. So um, going back to our clearing in the forest, imagine each star to be a tree, and we're ringed by an inner circle of fairly old trees, and as we go outwards, then there are progressively younger and younger trees. And so there's seedlings, and then there's a treeless plain. So this the trees and the stars have gaps between them, which is why it's dark at night. Nice work, Carl. Let me give you a paradox. Ah, I love a good paradox. This is one, this is one of my favourite mathematical paradoxes. It's called Berry's Paradox, B-E-R-R-Y, named after a guy who used to work in one of the libraries at Oxford University, I think, but uh, made famous by Bertrand Russell. Now, ah, there's a heavy hitter. The number 11. Yep. That takes three syllables to say, yes? 11. Yep, yep. All the numbers up to 11, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, I can describe in only one or two syllables. The number 7, I can just say 7. Seven. Yeah, okay. The number syllables. 5, I can say 5. Yep. 11 is the first number that needs three syllables. Right. 11 cannot be described in less than or fewer than three syllables. It is the smallest number that cannot be described in fewer than three syllables. Okay. If you did, what if you tried adding five and six? That's five plus six needs three syllables. Gotcha. Again, so eleven is the smallest number mm-hmm. that can't be described using fewer than three syllables. If we keep going along the numbers, mm-hmm. there'll be some number that's the first one that can't be described in less than four ah. syllables and five syllables. Eventually, they'd have to be the Least integer that cannot be described in fewer than 19 syllables, yes? Oh, like 15 million, 300, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. Okay. But that phrase that I just used, and I'll, I've got to get it, I'll get it precisely right, the least integer not describable using less than 19 syllables, yeah. that phrase has only 18 syllables. Oh, come on. So, when you get to the number that can't be described in less than 19 syllables, you can describe it in less than 19 syllables as the smallest number that can't be described in less than 19 syllables. Oh, my God, we're mixing linguistics and mathematics. So, that number both can't be described in less than 19 syllables and can be described in less than 19 syllables at the same time. Boom! I don't want to live in a universe like that. It's a paradox. Thank you very much, Barry's Paradox, made famous by Bertrand Russell. Wow. You like that? Oh, I'm floating on air, man. It might be time to let people go and let that sink in. We'll be back next week with another Sleek Geeks podcast. Thanks so much for listening. 
Cakes. <laughs>